Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, author of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And Ginger Glasser can be found at Ginger Tyro... Oh, jeez, I keep messing up. Tyrobyginger.com. And if you are looking for, um, if you have any major decisions or looking to see what kind of influence or surrounding a certain decision or something that's going on in your life, I highly recommend her because she can help you assist making those kind of decisions. And again, you can find her at tarotbyginger.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Vicki Joy, and she has a book out called The Only Come Out at Night, Exposing the Dark Weapon of Sleep Paralysis. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me on, Gary. Glad to be here. So... I've done a few episodes on dreams and sleeps, and um, I've done, you know, interviewed experiencers and all kinds of people who have different views on sleep paralysis. And I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about it, whether it is a medical condition, is it something that's being caused by aliens, is it a dream state, is it, what is it? Yeah, absolutely. That's really why I wanted to write the book, because I do think that we've gotten to a point where we're able to have very intellectually honest discussions about things that are being disclosed, things that we previously in prior decades could not talk about with a straight face, or we couldn't talk about without being labeled crazy or schizophrenic. And we're now in an era where we're able to talk openly about these things with with serious looks on our face and with the uh, especially the influx of Gaia.com that has just blown wide open the doors. These things that we're now allowed to explore and talk about. And so if we're going to take things seriously now and we're going to talk about UFO abductions and we're going to going to talk about aliens, we're going to talk about Anunnaki and we're going to talk about Akashic Records and the astral plane then why is sleep paralysis still sort of this stigmatized experience that gets gaslit? It gets not taken seriously, even um, in the fictionalized for entertainment podcasts where people submit their paranormal stories. A lot of times in the liner notes, it'll say, submit your story, no sleep paralysis. Um, and if anyone ever gives uh, an experience or tells about one of their stories, that's when the comment sections uh, light up, like, well, that was just sleep paralysis. And there is just a inability at this point to to take the, the experience seriously as a paranormal or a supernatural or a spiritual or a mystical event. There is so much online talking about how it is strictly and only a medical condition. And I don't rule that out. And I actually, in the first chapter of my book, talk quite a bit about the physiological aspects of it and things about our physiology that actually exacerbate the experience or can bring the experience on. I don't write that off. One of the things that I try to do in the book is take all sides and let's have a discussion because we all have a puzzle piece to bring to the table. And so 
I, I don't think that you can take something as complex as sleep paralysis or the UFO abduction experience and relegate it into one little clear cut category. This is purely scientific. This is purely demonic. There, there are many layers and there's, there's nuances with each particular experience. And so I think that we need to do like they did in antiquity. And I, I go at length in the book, uh, as well about this. There was never in antiquity. It's only as of late that we have had this bitter divorce between science and medicine and the mystical or the spiritual or the religious or the supernatural. These things were always uh, entwined uh, throughout antiquity. They, they, they could not be separated. And mm-hmm. I think that one of the reasons why we're having trouble really coming to any useful explanations for these experiencers is because we are so dead set on making sure that we don't we don't get our chocolate in our peanut butter, so to speak, right? Like, don't get your religion into my science. Don't get your science into my into my worldview and my religion. But it really, I think, is going to be necessary for us to be open minded and communicate with one another. Um, because I don't think that we're going to come to any real intelligent conclusions until we are willing to kind of look at every single puzzle piece that makes up this picture. So what got you interested in this topic to begin with? Like, where does this story begin? Well, I was I was drawn into it against my will. I started, at least my first memory of it, I started experiencing it when I was three years old. I do think it's potential, potentially could have started earlier, but my, my memories only go back to about two and a half years old. And I think I was three or four the first time I, I remember having sleep paralysis. But it occurred on a very frequent, regular basis, several nights in a row. It would go for weeks. It would kind of go away. It would come back. And this is kind of like what I was talking about, that the physiological aspects, that high amounts of stress and trauma can bring it on. I was having lots of surgeries as a child. I was in and out of the hospital all the time, having reconstructive surgery on my face. And that's a pretty traumatic experience for a two, three, four, five-year-old you know, and then you're out in public and eventually you're going to school. And so people are staring and they're pointing and they're asking questions or they're being unkind. And so I was always in sort of these very traumatic, difficult situations as a child, trying to navigate through this this world I was living in and, and the, the cards that had been dealt to me. And so uh, it, it could definitely be worse. These experiences could be worse as a surgery approached or if I was in the hospital or um, if I was like a, a first day at school or I was starting a new school. So uh, there, there's absolutely credence to the fact that uh, stress might ne- not necessarily be the ultimate root cause of sleep paralysis. But if you've got a lot of stress and a lot of trauma, you're definitely paving the way for a, a perfect opportunity for it. it. It does make it more more likely. So I, I had it for 47 years off and on. And uh, varying degrees, it, it was somewhat of the classic experience with the shadow men and the hat men and the ominous figures in the room and the feelings of evil and dread and and the taunting, the vibrations in my ear, uh, the uh, very much lucid dreaming. Even if I don't have sleep paralysis, I'm very much a lucid dreamer, um, astral, astral plane, astral abduction sort of things. And you know, it's it's interesting, and this is I, I I do go at length in the book about this. There there's kind of two categories of of astral projectors. There's the people that are are very well aware of it and they're trained in it, they're skilled 
in it. They're looking for that experience. They, they know how to do it and they're going there very willingly. But then there's a group of people that have not provoked it. They're not looking for it. They're not interested in it. And they are continuously getting pulled into that realm. And that's really the, the audience, the core audience of my book is, is this happening to you? Are you wondering why it's happening to you? Are you being targeted by this? Do you want it to stop? And so those are really the people that I'm trying to, to help because that is the experience that I had for, for nearly 50 years. So what were your experiences with sleep paralysis like, the ones that you remember from the earliest? They were very scary. And um, because I was relate because I was raised in a religious home, I mean, I was never told, like, this is what you do, because I didn't know as a child what sleep paralysis was. I never even heard the phrase sleep paralysis until I was in my 30s. So I just thought I was having bad dreams. <clears throat> but I I knew that these dreams were much, they were something different. They I knew that they were something different. And even the way as a, a young toddler, I would try to communicate with my parents, I would say, I had one of those dreams last night. And so even as a child, I recognized there were things unique about this dream experience. Namely, it was the same dream over and over and over again. It was like a recurring nightmare. And I also realized at a very young age and would communicate to my parents, I don't know if I'm awake or asleep because I can see my room. I can see my pajamas. I can see my teddy bear on the bed. I can, and it, it was very unusual to me that uh, I could always sense what was in the room and things. And so I, I knew there was something very different, different about it. But uh, I also knew that the fear levels were exponentially greater than an average nightmare, you know, where you would wake up in the dark after mm -hmm. a bad dream. This was exponentially off the charts, more frightening. And it seemed personal. It it wasn't like I was an observer in this. It It was these things saw me. They were directing their energy toward me. I could feel it and their, their emotions and energy had a direct impact on me. I had no control over my own, uh, body at that point. You know, you can't move and you can't scream and you can't talk. And so <clears throat> this was pretty much the way it was most of my life. It did intensify as I got older. Um, things would kind of happen uh, when I wasn't asleep or as I was preparing to go to bed, things like that. So um, I did, I did see sort of the, you know, strange, strange things and movements and sounds and a lot of auditory hallucinations. Uh, but I, I, in comparison to what some people talk about, you know, where they talk about actual, you know, incubus, succubus encounters and being physically or sexually violated, pulled out of their bed with a wake up with scratches and I, I never had anything that intense. The intensity of my experience was the frequency of, of it because it just occurred on a near nightly basis and continued off and on for decades. So before we dive into like what it is, um, do you think that all sleep paralysis, event, paralysis events are caused by the same thing or is there different types of sleep paralysis that can be attributed to different sources. Yes, I do think that there are different kinds. There in in its most basic form and and I do make these distinctions in the book. If you want to be completely technical from a physiological 
physiological standpoint, everyone has sleep paralysis numerous times during the night as we go in and out of sleep. There's sleep stages where we fall into a natural type of paralysis. It's a protection for us so that we don't act out our dreams. It's right. so we're not sleepwalking. Right. We're not kicking people. We're not um, wetting the bed. You know, our, our system just goes into deep, deep relaxation. And so I think that that's another reason why so many people who who have that experience because when you wake up when you wake up with sleep paralysis it, it can be deeply relaxing it can feel wonderful it, it's just this deep state of of being at peace and so if you have a sleep paralysis experience with no auditory or visual hallucinations the people that, that talk about the hallucinations do sound a little bit crazy you're like well this happens to me all the time what are they talking about so when we talk about sleep paralysis what we're technically talking about isn't the paralysis itself we're talking about a uh, event or an episode that occurs during sleep paralysis where visual and audio uh, hallucinations can occur and we can have lucid dream, we can have out-of-body experiences, we can see and visualize various entities and beings, we can be pulled into the astral. And so that's what we're talking about. We're, we're technically talking about a sleep paralysis episode, but they do vary quite greatly. There are, there are people that have um, events that they would like... A, what I would call the classic one is, is like the old hag syndrome or the shadow person. Uh, but then you've got ones that really mimic the UFO abduction where you've got the beings, the three foot beings and things like that. And uh, those are more like lights at the window type of a thing rather than darkness at the door. Uh, but then there's also a whole new kind of genre of sleep paralysis experiencers where they're seeing things that are of a technological or an electronic sort of uh, phenomenon where they're not seeing beings or entities, but they're seeing technology. They're seeing their room painted in fiber optics, or they're seeing things that uh, many describe as screensavers kind of being projected from their third eye, or they're seeing lights and blinking and various things like that. So it's a very intriguing kind of new realm, I think, of, of the sleep paralysis experience. Interesting. And so... And then also, like I alluded to earlier, yeah, um, as I alluded to earlier, also there, there are, there are things that can exacerbate the experience, uh, such as trauma, childhood trauma, stress. Um, if you already have some sort of an illness or a mental illness, depending upon if you're on lots of psychotropic medication or lots of, if you're, if you're doing things that already affect your, your brain or your neurology, uh, because so much of this involves the mind's eye and, and the pineal gland. And so when there's things going on neurologically in the brain, it's not so ne necessarily the cause of sleep paralysis, but these things can be uh, triggers. Um, so how many like like sleep paralysis cases do you think are actually being caused by aliens? And if it is being caused by aliens, are these extraterrestrials coming from another planet or are they coming from another dimension yeah i personally from my research believe that it's dimensional and so obviously i come through i come from a lot of my research through a biblical worldview or biblical lenses and i really want to make the distinction that there's a difference between a biblical point of view and a christian point of view 
because there are many, many Christians that are not at all familiar with their own handbook. They don't read the Bible. They don't study it. They don't know what's in there. They don't understand what a lot of it means. They're not doing deep dives into it. And so um, I'm not really particularly too interested in what a quote-unquote Christian would say about it, but I am interested if the Bible as a historical document has anything meaningful to say about aliens or the paranormal or the supernatural. And I, I am of the persuasion that the, the Bible, the, the handbook to the supernatural is, is filled with what we would in modern cultures call divination. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Tons of, but that, that's kind of a bad word. You don't say the deep yeah, tons of it. And so, you know, there's certain words that become taboo in Christianity. And so we tend to become afraid of them. And yet they really are represented in, in the handbook. They really mm -hmm. are in the scriptures. And even when you, when you, especially in the Old Testament with Moses and I mean, Moses was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. You don't think that Pharaoh had, <laughs> had information about the mystery schools and you know all the stuff of the book of the dead and i mean moses knew uh, uh about magic and divination and the the mystery schools and the occult as did joseph who years later was second in command under pharaoh in in egypt and abraham <coughs> was raised um in the parts of shinar abraham's father terah was in the employ of nimrod and so um when 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 Joseph put the kept putting the cup in his brother's sack to indict Benjamin to you know have put you know put forth this plot to have his his brothers discover who he was, um, you don't see it in in the actual scriptures. But if you go to the Book of Jubilees, which is like the director's cut of Genesis, um, it doesn't say that Joseph put his cup or his goblet in Benjamin's sack. It says he put his divination cup in in that sack. And it talks about how Benjamin discovered that Joseph was his long lost brother, not because he was told, but because Joseph brought out a map of the stars. We would call it the Zodiac today, mm. but it was called the Maseroth back then. He brought out the Maseroth and by reading a map of the stars, Benjamin was able to divine that his brother was still alive and he narrowed it down through the use of the star chart to realize that his brother was the one sitting in front of him. And so a lot of that's been scrubbed out of the scriptures because people think divination and magic and the supernatural belong solely and only to the occult or to the left-hand path or to the new age or whatever synonym you choose. But you cannot get around the fact that the Bible is extraordinarily supernatural and there are many, many clues to paranormal events very specifically, sleep paralysis in the scriptures. There's mentions to, of it in Job. There's mentions in Isaiah of the screech owl, which if you do research, that's the, the night terror. That's the Lilith. That's the, the succubus. Uh, Psalm 91 talks about the terror of night. And a lot of us think, oh, that means, you know, terror is like a verb, like we're feeling terror, but terror, the, the Hebrew word used in, in Psalm 91 five for that you will not fear the terror of night. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is pachad, and the pachad actually shows up in the D3, which is the Dictionary of Deities and Demons. The pachad is an actual night terror uh, demon. And if you if you study the actual Hebrew letters that spell pachad, the pe, the chet, and the dalit, 
and you go into the deep esoteric meanings of what those letters stand for and the imagery that they stand for, this terror by night is actually a, a an actual entity that incapacitates people with fear and they're unable to speak. And they, the, the Dalit is the doorway. And this doorway, which should be a doorway or a portal to the presence of God, when usurped by, by the Pachad, the terror of night, it becomes a, a portal to the terrors of hell or to the, to the portals of other dimensions or to the portals of the astral realm. And, and so there's deep, deep meaning and uh, sleep paralysis information in a scripture. If someone is looking for it, if someone's digging for it, if they're, if they're not just doing cursory little out of context search you know, where a lot of Christians are just looking for the verses that make them feel good that day. Um, but if one is looking for it, there is deep, deep esoteric supernatural information encoded in the scriptures. So what does this mean? Does this mean that a lot of the entities that are encountered during sleep paralysis are like leftover Nephilim from, you know, what's described in the Bible? Yeah, that is a great point. I'm so glad you brought that up, Gary. So technically, and this is another, um, this is another point where a lot of Christians, if you ask them, what is a demon? I don't know that they would give you this answer, but the, the theological answer, those who have actually studied and, and gotten, you know, their, their Old Testament survey classes under their belt, um, there's very little reference to the Nephilim in scripture. I mean, there's, there's lots of reference to the giants and the Raphaim. And if you, if you understand who a lot of those people are that, that, um, God's people were always fighting against and trying to wipe out, you know, all the Raphaim and the, all that. And then you would understand who those, who those people were. And, and many of them were, were giants and things like that. But, um, <coughs> the, the book of Enoch, Enoch one, as well, as the Dead Sea Scrolls and a litany of Jewish <coughs> literature all agree that the the textbook definition of a demon is the disembodied souls of the Nephilim. And so um, for for those who this is new to, in the Book of Enoch, we, it talks about this event and it uses the word watchers. Um, I think in in our current culture, they're they're called Anunnaki. But the Watchers were originally, um, they were supposed to be mediators between the spiritual and the earthly realm. They were supposed to be friends to mankind. They were supposed to be teaching us and helping us. And, well, 200 of them defected. And so they came down Mount Hermon and they intermarried with the human women. And they, the progeny was these demigods, these giants, these Nephilim. So when they were wiped out in the flood, because they were half angel, they were immortal. So the, the flesh body died, but the spirit remained immortal. And so these, these terrors, these demons, as some people call them, are, are really just the, the Nephilim that have been around for, they're ancient. They've been around for thousands of years. And so I, I don't really like it when people just categorize, like in, in the religious realm, when people categorize mm -hmm. anything evil, anything bad, anything ominous, anything unexplained as it was a demon. It was a demon. Cause, there are a lot of creatures out there. There, there is a entire roster of, of beings and, and entities, uh, many of which we know nothing of. And so to just kind of lazily categorize every single thing we encounter as a demon 
is just theologically and literarily and it's just it's just incorrect and so i just think one of the things that i really am hoping to do is uh educate even the church in their own in their own doctrine and so much of the scripture does not make sense to us the way we're taught it in church but if we even understand that one piece if we even just could unpack genesis 6 and understand the implications of of the watchers and the nephilim uh, so much of the Old Testament that is bothersome to people, you know, like, why are they going around killing all these people? They're savages and God's a murderer. And so much of what doesn't make sense to us and that makes God look like a savage would contextually make so much more sense if we had some of these puzzle pieces. Mm-hmm. Genesis 6 is really interesting. I've interviewed Gary Wayne a couple of times about Genesis Love 6. Love him. He, I have read his book. It, if anybody's got six months to spare and they want to read a tome that guy is a bevy of information and not just on on the nephilim but on all of the background of of secret societies and and the blood drinking dragon cults and uh the oh he's just amazing so the nephilim they're still around what are they doing here and what type of influence or impact are they trying to make on humanity and why? Sure. I, I think my little layman's terms, and, and, you know, this is one of those things where um, Gary Wayne, you, you go to him if you want to know about Nephilim. There's so many researchers now coming out who, who talk about the Nephilim. Uh, Tom Horn being another one of them. L.A. Marzulli um, has talked about them as well. L.A. is the one who published my book. Um, but my understanding is they're trying to reclaim what was lost. You know, they ruled this earth. The, their fathers, the, these watchers, they came down and they, they ruled the world in the time of Genesis. They took over and they were building kingdoms. And even after the flood, the time of, of Nimrod, Nimrod was an ordinary man. And there's this interesting verse where it says that Nimrod became a gift. Ibarim, you know, which is not the same thing as the Nephilim. Nimrod's father and mother were both earthborn, um, but there was this, there was giants in the earth in those days and also afterwards. So these, these Nephilim were able to build kind of like a 2.0 version of themselves as well. And so, you know, whether you're, you're studying theosophy or you're studying the lost, uh, city of Atlantis, or you're studying the Anunnaki, or you're studying Genesis 6 with the Watchers and the Nephilim, it's all kind of telling the same story. It's it's all the same mythology of this great golden age that once ruled the world. And I believe that, you know, even to our modern, you know, culture where we talk about the new world order and the deep state, it, it all just comes down to the same root. And that is that these powerful demigods who once ruled the world want their power back they want their throne back and even nimrod a lot of people you know we get the sunday school brushed up version of Mm -hmm. the tower of babel like they were just trying to build the you know the twin towers of their time like we're going to build the highest building in new york city and you know it's going to be impressive and it's going to show our power but what they were actually building there um, they weren't trying to reach the heavens height wise. They were trying to reach the heaven 
things dimensionally. And so what we have there is probably a very arcane sort of version of of a CERN or a, a portal of some kind. They were trying to build a portal, and you get more information in Enoch 1, where Nimrod wasn't trying to just build a big, tall building. Like, he wasn't just, you know, an architect. What What he wanted to do was dimensionally get himself into the throne room of God, the third heaven, and literally kill God. God, and dethrone God and take mm-hmm. that take that throne and so it is it is all about power and um the the reclaiming of a kingdom that they they believe is theirs hmm. do you think that God could be killed I personally don't but I think that when you're dealing with narcissistic uh, beings and entities who have really accomplished a lot like they they might not achieve their ultimate goal but look how much they have achieved look how much they have influenced and taken over look at what they have done to put god behind a shadow and make him look impotent and make him look irrelevant and you know they they, they're telling the same exact lie that goes all the way back to genesis 1 the only lie the serpent has is you can be as a god and this is even kind of in baked into the left-hand, right-hand path dogma, where the left-hand path is traditionally uh, any sort of belief or worldview. It's like self-actualization without the need for a higher power, whereas the right-hand path pathers are, I'm going to become a bigger, better person through the help of a higher power with my the, his glory reflecting through me rather than my own glory being 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 shown and so it all just goes back to that you can be as a god it's what he told adam and eve and and it's still what we're being told today and it's what we're being told through theosophy it's what we're being told through ascension doctrine and so it really comes down to if we're in a cosmic war which according to ephesians 6 12 our our battle isn't against each other it's not against races or genders or sexual orientations our our battle is against these things in the heavenly places these rulers these archons these these uh principalities and so it really comes down to are we going to believe that we're in a in a cosmic war that that was the only thing Jesus preached Jesus preached the the gospel of the kingdom so what he was basically saying in in modern terms is you guys, you, you human beings, you're, you're cannon fodder in a cosmic war. There's a war going on behind the veil and you got to pick a side. You got to pick a team. And so we can, we can pick the Jesus team and, and decide that when his kingdom comes, we're going to be a part of that kingdom or we can be a part of the kingdom that's being established on earth right now before our very eyes. Is that the kingdom that we're going to choose? And the only thing I would just warn people about through, through biblical lenses, if, if you've studied the, the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, and you've studied the extra and the parabiblical um, texts as I have, I can tell you that the serpent has been telling people for uh, thousands and thousands of years that they can be as gods, but as of yet, it, it hasn't happened. These people continue to to die and, and have funerals, and Adam and Eve never became gods. And 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 so, you know, I, I understand, I'm fully aware of the fact that there is ascended masters and Nimrod be- Came a gibberim. I'm not saying that it's not possible for human beings to ascend to higher levels of consciousness, but is that the same thing as being a god? And when in this cosmic war, or when it comes to a head, when 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 the Christ figure, the Messiah figure comes back, will the godhood that 
you achieve to be powerful enough to usurp that? That that's the real question. It's not can we obtain more knowledge? Of course we can. Uh, can we become higher vibrational beings? Of course we can. But the real question is, in this cosmic war, will what you have achieved ultimately save you or help you when when the war comes to a head? Hmm. So this, <clears throat> this always leads me to the same question. I've asked it to L.A. Um, I've had very long discussions with Gary Wayne about it. If God is all power and full and has created everything, why doesn't he just wipe out the Nephilim and skip all the drama? <laughs> That that is an age old question, and um, you know who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, who has ever given to God that God should repay Him for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's written in in the New Testament, and there are aspects of of God the Father of Yahweh that um, are absolutely perplexing to us, and some of that might play into the 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 necessity for for faith but there's an interesting uh, uh verse in in the new testament where the disciples basically tell jesus the same thing why are you talking in these parables why why are you going out and talking all these riddles like why are you talking in riddles what if, if you want people to believe in you and to receive this message why don't you just speak plainly to them and and he says something very Unjesus like, you know, it, it's very non hippie. He says, if I speak plainly, they, they might understand and they might believe. And so he talks about the kingdom of heaven being like a treasure buried in a field. And anyone who's ever done any sort of archaeological thing, if you're trying to find something and you're, you've got all of this modern equipment and you're, you're digging and there's archaeologists that dig for years and years and years and never find this artifact that they're looking for. You know, where's the Ark of the Covenant? Where, you know, how, how long did it take us to find the Titanic? And when you look at the work of an archaeologist and how much sweat and brain power and technology and money and how much of their life they invest, because they're so determined to find this one thing that they've set their heart on. That is the analogy that the New Testament uses for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field. And so I think that it could, along with many other explanations, um, namely, if God came down and explained all of it to us, would we even get it in our simple Simplicity, but I think what it is is that the people that that do find him, it says in Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with your whole heart, and so I think what he's looking for is um, not just the fair weather fans who you know I'll 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 buy tickets to the baseball game if they're in the World Series, but I'm I'm not going to support them when they're losing, and and I think it's kind of the same sort of concept where God is so precious and glorious and intelligent and beyond really what we deserve to know and understand that he reserves the the greater secrets and mysteries for those who are pursuing him with their heart soul mind and and strength he he's not a modern american who gets on tiktok and is just doing anything to get 20 million views or 20 million subscribers he's not out to just get his 15 minutes of fame. 
He is a treasure buried in the field, and he will only be found by those who invest their life in digging. So does that mean that, to me it almost sounds like then, when, I, when I'm listening to the script, like possibly, and don't take this personally, that God is a narcissist with his own small inside clique. Sure, and I know that that's a common thing, but if you actually look at narcissism, when you go through the phases of narcissism, where you've got the, you know, the, the love bombing phase at first, but then as you carry on longer and longer, the more you get to know a narcissist, the love bombing part goes away. And then there's a devaluing phase. And then ultimately there's a discard phase. And so ultimately God does not fit the formula of a narcissist because the love bomb phase doesn't ever stop and it's not disingenuine. He doesn't get to a point where he devalues and discards the, the people that, that follow him. And so ultimately, um, the, the, the mystery that he's shrouded in isn't to me an intentional thing. Like I am hiding myself from mankind. And this is kind of like the HP Lovecraft version, you know, his, his God figure is the big blind, stupid God in the sky. And, and so, a lot of people fall into that um, and they, they have trouble connecting with him. But a lot of the reasons that we have trouble understanding and connecting with God is not because he's withholding himself. It's because of the damage wreaked upon mankind, our, our minds and our spirits, our bodies. Everything was radically transformed in the garden when the rebellion occurred, when the fall happened. And those transformational things that occurred created a disconnect. And so mankind, on behalf of our forerunner, Adam, chose, chose that separation. They, they left the garden where all the secrets were unhidden. And then we have a divisive enemy who is actively seeking through smoke and mirrors and subterfuge and lies and deception is complicating and distorting the scriptures. And, and so there's, there's more than one player here. And when, when you look at scriptures, you can see that that God went to great lengths to try to explain many times to mankind who he was. He he came down and gave Moses the Torah, and he came down in the form of man as Jesus Christ. And one of the interesting passages is after after Jesus resurrects, he he meets with three of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't recognize him. And then eventually they do recognize him. But the the part of that verse that I love that most you know pastors skip over is during that time when they were walking the road to Emmaus with the resurrected Jesus Christ and they did not know it was him, it says that Jesus explained to them, he unfolded to them the entirety of the law and the prophets, which is the Torah and, you know, a good portion of the Old Testament. So they literally had every single secret revealed to them. Everything was explained to them. This is every single esoteric little uh, nuance in the Old Testament. This is every piece of the Torah. And then the Great Commission was, he said, everything that I've just told you, tell to everyone. And they ultimately failed in that quest. They did a great job up until Paul, but when Paul died, and then um, when Constantine came onto the scene, all of that knowledge was once again obscured. And so I don't think that it's God himself withdrawing and withholding he continuously reveals this to mankind and it continually becomes forgotten and obscured by, by enemies of the cause. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. So I know I've veered way off the path here of sleep paralysis. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's okay. But uh, so so back to the sleep paralysis. Okay. So I'm starting to get the idea that that um, the idea here is that these nephilim are causing sleep paralysis to manipulate humanity. I, I do think it does in large part have to do with the transformation of, of the soul. One of the quotes I use in my book, I love it, I quote it often because it just perfectly encapsulates this kind of theme of transformation. Uh, Clive Barker, he's an English playwright. He's most known for the Hellraiser franchise, you know, Pinhead. And, oh, yeah, he's a genius. Um, love him. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Was, and. So he said, now, th- this this quote is rather dated, and, and you'll see that it's dated, but it, it's a good point. He says, confrontation with the very dark or the very bright should be about what you do tomorrow, what that does to your life thereafter. I don't believe these people who've had their paranormal experience and do nothing with this information except to go on the Phil Donahue show and say that they've seen them. These people aren't transformed. So what Barker is telling us here is is that if you're having confrontations with the very dark or the very bright, if you're having confrontations with entities, whether they're Nephilim or whether they're demons or whether they're angels or spirit guides, whether it's a left-hand, right-hand path, like regardless, if you're having paranormal visitations and experiences and you aren't transformed by that experience, if all it is is these horripilating little stories that you tell around the campfire so that all your friends go, whoa, that happened to you? Wow. Like if that's, if all it is is an Instagram post or an opportunity to go on a talk show, he's saying you've completely missed the point about why these things from the spiritual realm are, are presenting themselves to us. Because whether it's very dark or very bright, it is all about transformation. And I think this is another area where we have to be in intellectually honest with one another you know we kind of think that christianity or religion is the only religion that's really trying to capture the soul or transform the soul you know give your heart over to jesus christ and he'll transform you into you into this new creation and then one day he'll give you this resurrection body it's all about levels of transformation uh to use the secular terms that's ascension doctrine. That's moving into levels of higher vibrational being. You know, you become a Christian and then you try to be a better person and then you're seeking God and you're becoming selfless and you're, and you're becoming, you know, more of, of a, a, you you know, in the scripture it talks about the fruits of the spirit. So you're trying to acquire love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. And then once you've done as much as you can here on earth in this body, then you're going to ascend to another level because now you're going to get this, this resurrection body. And so all of this sort of language is attributed solely to becoming a Christian or being a Christian. But uh, honestly, it's exactly what the other side is doing as well. They might not be saying it that way. um, But the fact is, these sleep paralysis entities, whether they're demons, whether they're aliens, whether they're Nephilim, whether they're whether there's something we've never heard of, the fact is they're they're missionaries. These are these are the Apostle Pauls. This is the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the other side. They're coming, and anyone who has had these experiences or gone into the astral knows 
that there is a grooming process that goes on in that astral. They're teaching us their perspective. Like, no, 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 no. It's you can be as a God and you can ascend to a higher vibrational self and you can achieve this. They're preaching. You know, they are preaching a, a gospel message and it's a gospel message of transformation. It's a gospel message of salvation. It's just, it's the reflex of, of what you're seeing going on in the Bible. And so we need to just be honest and understand that both, both sides of the cosmic war are sending representatives on their behalf, coming down and expressing to the human beings, this is what you need to believe. This is the truth. And it becomes a matter of our discernment and our testing of these spirits and our life experiences and our having conversations like we're having today to determine which truth am I going to pick? Which higher level being am I going to look to as my mentor? Which promise of eternal life am I going to receive? Am I going to take the traditional Jesus Christ eternal life, sit in heaven on a cloud with a harp thing? Or am I going to take the eternal life that's being promised now through uh, technology? Is it going to be singularity? Is it going to be a higher vibrational ascension? They're both promising eternal life. They're both promising a salvation through a better human body. So it's just a matter of taking into account both offers, looking at both offers on the table and determining which offer you're going to take. But they're both offering, in essence, the same thing. They're a type of a transformation of the soul, some sort of a salvation experience, whether it's through the left-hand path of self-actualization or through the path of uh, of, of using a, a higher power, um, that it's not me that's going to become the God, but that I am going to die to self and and rely upon this God to save me. So if they're both using the same technique and both making the same promise, how do we know that, that, that Jesus was not the Nephilim and the what we're perceiving as Nephilim are actually servants of God? It, it's a great question. And Gary, it's one I'm not afraid of. And it's because it's something that in order, the scripture says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And those, those are the kinds of questions that lead me to believe that you're doing exactly that. You're not just saying, I'm not going to just believe this guy because, you know, th this Bible has been around for a million years and there's a bunch of Christians that tell me I got to do it. And so I, I love the way your brain is wrapping around this because it does say the entire book of first John and bear in mind that John is the same guy that wrote revelation. So when he wrote the book of first John, he had already had his visions on Patmos, extremely mm -hmm. supernatural uh, visions into the third heaven. And so after he had seen all of these visions of the throne of God and this, you know, the woman and the, the dragon and the many horns and the, the trumpets and the seals being ripped open and the four horsemen, after seeing all of that with his own eyes and having it explained to him, he wrote First John, which was test every spirit to see whether it's of God. There are many antichrists out there. Indeed, there are many antichrists have already come. And so he, he talks about how we can't take everything at face value. We have to, to test the spirits. And, um, I can already see ways that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is going to be repacked 
packaged in esoteric, almost Masonic type of of language. I mean, if you've ever done any research on the ancient dolmens and the the jed, the Egyptian mm-hmm. jed, which was a which was a battery power, and how they would concentrate lightning into these lightning rods and and transform the lightning into ball lightning, and it would surge down this lightning rod into a sensor on their heads as they laid under the protection of these dolmens. And it was a, a form of prolonging life. And, and, and it, it did work. And, and if you even look in the scripture, we take it for granted. And, you know, it, it just says things like, you know, Methuselah lived to 969 years old. And, at, you know, Moses was 500 years old when he gave birth to Shem and like all this stuff, right? And we, we tend to not really evaluate the mystery of the fact that these ancient people lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. And a lot of people say, well, the geology of the earth changed after the flood and something happened in the atmosphere. And well, you can speculate all day long, but the fact of the matter is they had technology in antiquity that actually brought length of life and through these dolmens and these jeds and this ball lightning. And and so when you have Jesus Christ going into a tomb, which is like a, a dolmen, this, this canopy of rock, and we know that there's weather patterns surrounding the 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 crucifixion because there was an earthquake and, and bodies even raised from the dead during during that time, and um and so it could easily be explained away that you know Jesus didn't raise from the dead he just went into one of these dolmens and received eternal life the same way all these other people were doing it at the time and the fact that Nicodemus was the one that got special permission from from the government officials to go and dress the body at Nicodemus was um a highly you know educated he he very much could have been you know an initiate right and so there's a million ways to explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ that will be extremely convincing and so what we have to do is test the spirits and you know this comes th- through many many different forms but um I, I really challenge people to do exactly what you're doing. And that is don't just take it at face value. I, I know, you know, you got to believe things by faith and, you know, these are the things that you hear in church, but, uh, it is, it is essential that we test the spirits because if we go by our hearts or by our impressions or our gut or our intuition, we're going to fail ourselves because it, it says many times in scripture that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can trace it out. And one of the things that I like to point out to people is, um, going back to Clive Barth- Barker, he, confrontations with the very dark or the very bright. We have all sorts of uh, references where people who have had confrontations with both have these experiences written down. And uh, there are a lot of people that encounter beings that they say, I was filled with love and, and these like emotions. And some people come back and say that it was like 10,000 orgasms. I never felt this way before. And it, it was beautiful. And it was this angel and it was so bright. And, and so their conclusion then is naturally that this was something of heaven, because clearly if it was something demonic, it would want to hurt me. It would want to scare me. But there is that little passage in, in the Bible that does say that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So you've got to, you've got to kind of work your way around that as well. Then you've got people in the scriptures who are running into angels that are being sent from the throne room and they're giving messages of good tidings or they're, you know, telling women that they're going to give birth to prophets or, or the Messiah. And, uh, the, the most common phrase uttered from the mouth of 
God's angels, when he, when they confront a human is fear not, do not be afraid. And, and these, these people, sometimes they fainted, their knees knocked together. They had to be revived. And so these are experiences where people uh, confronted the very bright. They were talking uh, to angels that were sent on behalf of God, they were quote unquote, good guys. And yet they evoked terror in, in the people that, that saw them. And so if we simply and only test a spirit based upon whether or not it made us feel good or it scared us, we're going to probably be a light year or more off course. How do we test a spirit then? Well, the, the way uh, a Christian would do it, the way I, I would do it, is I would match my experience up against the scriptures. And... Um, it, it says in Galatians 1, the, the disciples were, were warning the Galatians, the Gauls. They were saying, if anyone comes to you and preaches you a gospel that's different than this, even if it's an angel from heaven, you will be accursed. A curse will fall on you if you believe in a gospel, if it contradicts the one that we're teaching you. And the reason that they were doing that, it wasn't a power trip. They were going all the way back to the garden. The serpent only said one untrue thing. Everything that he was saying to Adam and Eve was true. He just wove one little inconsistency out of it. So it's one of these things like where you look at two pictures and you have to kind of with your eye determine, you know, what's the one difference between the two pictures or like, where's the where's Waldo, right? The only thing that the serpent said that deviated from the truth was, um, you know, did God really say that? So he called it into question. Wait, wait a minute. Wait, is that really what God said? So now he's got her kind of doubting. And then in that period of doubt, he comes in for the kill. No, he's actually withholding this from you because you can be as a God. And so what, what Paul is warning the Galatians of there isn't, um, Hey, I, I don't want someone taken away from, from, from my cash cow here. So if someone else comes to you, don't believe them. Mm. Because this church is going to make a million dollars. What what he was talking about there was, anytime someone comes and preaches this message to you, but there's there's a thread of a lie woven into it, shut it down, um, because that is the fingerprints of the serpent. The serpent likes to weave one little lie into the message. And so, um, I'll give you one example. I got an email recently from someone who said, um, I've been talking to an angel and I helped. I helped a little girl who's been dead for a hundred years find her reincarnated self. And the angel said that he wants to use me uh, uh, going forward um, as, as this kind of like, you know, messenger to, to help people. And, and so all I did, I didn't say you're right, you're wrong. I didn't preach to him. I didn't tell him to go join a Baptist church and to pray and receive Jesus. All I did is I picked three things that he brought up um, the the encounter with the angel, the reincarnation, and um, the fact that when Christ died, he earned the keys to death and Hades. So that the keys of death and Hades now belong to to Christ. He's the one that ushers people back and forth. And so all I did was pick those three topics, and then I wrote all of the verses in Scripture that contradicted this experience. And and I said, you decide for yourself, because if you don't believe in the veracity of scripture, I'm not here to tell you what to believe. And so if the scriptures aren't of value to you, then it doesn't matter what they say. You know, I'm, I'm not here to, to micromanage people's thoughts, but but that's the way that I do it primarily. And 
yeah, yeah, you can go and you can pray and you can talk to other people. There's always a, a risk in talking to other people because you ask a thousand people, you get a thousand answers. But, but my, the way that I test the spirits is simply to say, does, does the word of God back this up? Is, is what is being, uh, presented to me right now fall in line with the character and with the word and with the commandments and the promises of God? Because many times if you're, the, the key really is, knowing the word because uh it becomes pretty easy to pretty quickly determine when you're presented with something if it's if it's contradicting what what's in the scriptures if you know the scriptures you'll know it, what it contradicts and this goes back to the cliche thing that everybody's heard where the people who who are are trained in 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 finding counterfeit money they don't ever see a counterfeit bill. They're never told what a counterfeit bill looks like or, or what things to search for. All they do is study the actual bill and they know it like the back of their hand. So when they see something that isn't the real thing, they immediately know that is not the authentic dollar hmm. bill. And it's kind of the same thing with the Word of God and with testing the spirits. Um, I don't think you have to go out there and study every aspect of the occult and new age and theosophy and Blavatsky. And like, I don't think you need to go out there and become this, this genius and every single world religion, I think that if you've determined, okay, this is a cosmic war, and I I believe Jesus, I believe he is who he said he is, um, then you read the handbook, and you study it, and when the counterfeits come along, you recognize them immediately. So, what if, I mean, in, 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 in the Bible, it does say that God is the Father, and we are his children. So what if we are like, what if things in the cosmic realm or the holy realm are the same as they are here, where God is our Father, He created us, we are His children, will ascend, God will get old and die, we take over as God and have our own children, just like we do here. Yeah, so that goes all the way down to the the whether or not we believe that God is who he introduces himself in scripture as being. And so when when you use archaic old theological words that nobody wants to use anymore, God describes himself as the the I am. At no, he says I'm the alpha and the omega, I'm the beginning and the end. Um uh, he talks about all things were made by him and through him, which means nothing pre-existed him. And so when you talk about the eternality of his character, which is one of the things that makes him unique above all other things, is that if you believe the scriptures, then the, the, the hypothetical idea that God is going to at some point die that again, there, there is a counterfeit. There's something that you're not going to see in the scriptures. And you're, you're going to then, at that point, you have to not only extend your belief that no God actually could die. Then you have to take the words of the scriptures and of Jesus himself. And you have to then go the extra mile and say, Jesus was lying when he said this and that about the eternality. Um, um, before Abraham was, I am, he said, um, when they were, they were, they were mocking Jesus. You're not even 40 years old and you think you know all this stuff. Before Abraham, I, I am. And, 
And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That uh, if you do a deep dive into that verse and what what the beginning, the better sheet means, um, it means that when there was nothing, He was. And so, um, it it does come down to faith in some aspects, Gary. But um, it, if the Word of God is something that you're going to believe, this this is true, uh, then. We have to believe that the things that God says to describe his own character are true. And so um, it, we got a bigger problem on our hands if God dies someday, because if if something that God said about his character turns out to be untrue or a misstep or a lie, then we really don't have anything to stand on anymore at all. Because if God isn't who he says he is, if he is a trickster or a liar or he's just ill-informed about his own nature because he's not he's also not in tune with who he is Mm -hmm. then then we have to kind of rebuild the foundation from scratch uh um completely as to well then who is god Um, so that 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 makes me that kind of makes me assume though that the nephilim probably suspect that god isn't who he says either because they believe they can overtake him if they didn't believe that then their whole effort would be an effort of futility yeah well, and, and they might believe it, but ultimately who God is isn't affected by what other people believe about him to be true, whether it's a human being or a Nephilim. The, the unshakable character of God doesn't change depending upon that. But with the Nephilim, they absolutely could believe that they, they can do this. And, and I don't think the Nephilim are the highest in power either. Um, they're half human, so they're, they're not, and I mean, if if you go into the research about uh, uh, of demonology and you know the hierarchy of demons, any demon that is the the demons by by default of being half human are already lower on the totem pole than most of these entities because they they are they're poisoned with this inferior human blood and um, in antiquity the incubus and the succubus were the lowest, lowest on the totem pole because they were seen as, as demigods. They were seen as partially human. And so the, the demons, I don't think are the highest power. Uh, they're not the ones that are going to be taken over. And when you talk about Abaddon the destroyer who's going to be led out of the abyss and, and wreak havoc and, and murder and kill for five months on the earth, uh, as, as Azazel or, you know, Abaddon, whoever Apollyon there is, He's not a demon. He's not some little half human that some human woman gave birth to. These are our watcher entities. These are high ranking angelic beings that once stood before the throne of God that fell from their glory. And so the Nephilim, they play a part in all of this, but they're, they are so outranked by so many other entities. Um, I mean, they, they don't even have their bodies anymore. You know, they have to, you know, come up with alternatives. And so, and so, um, I do believe that Satan and the, the evil people out there and even the human elite people who think they're going to take over the world, I absolutely believe that they think that they can do it. But, um, that to me is the evidence of who on which side of this cosmic war has, has the narcissists in power because when when you start believing your own crap you know you do sort of you go insane and and there's allusions in scripture to to what what led satan astray and and it, it it's interesting it, it says in scripture that he was 
he was tempted away by his own beauty. He was apparently the most beautiful of all of the creations. And um, Mike Lake, I don't know if you're familiar with Michael K. Lake, but he's a brilliant scholar. And he theorizes, and, and I, I love this, that when before Lucifer fell and he was in heaven, he stood before the throne. And so as God was on his throne receiving all of this worship from tens of millions of angels, the Lucifer could almost pretend, since God was behind him, that all of that worship was being directed at him. And it it affected him, and it turned him prideful. I mean, uh, imagine being on a stage, you know, in a stadium with, you know, 80 million people all screaming and cheering, and imagine what that would feel like. Now, never, never mind the fact that it's the band that they came to see standing behind you that they're screaming at, but imagine what that would feel like to be on that stage and to just be facing all of that adulation and that, that worship and that power. And so, um, I, I think that Lucifer came, became susceptible and fell because he started to flirt with the, with the idea that, that that adulation and that worship, that worship felt really good. And, and we all know just from human characters that we've met that when you meet someone who's really arrogant or when you meet a narcissist, they really are insane. I mean, they have a perception of themselves and of the power that they have over you and of the world. Um, they, they speak in terms of I, me, my, like every, everything in the universe is happening because they've somehow directed it. And, um, so I don't think that these things believing that they are going to win or that they're going to kill God is, is really anything to be concerned about. I think it's more of a reflection of their own character and their own self-worth and uh, their own ideas about themselves. I, I think it, it reflects more the narcissism that they are, are living with than, than the possible, the real possibility that an eternal creature who created him first of all if god did create something that was capable of of killing him it, it would not make him look very intelligent in my eyes so you know that you always have this in 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 our world you know like oh they in star wars they build this death star and they've got this amazing you know impenetrable space station but there's that one little thing that if you get a bullet down there it's going to destroy the whole thing right and so it's like did god build that little um deeply hidden Death Star, you know, switch in himself where if, if we're clever enough, we're going to find this thing that can destroy him. It, it wouldn't seem to me if, if he had any intelligence about him that he would, he would build that into himself and create things that could destroy him. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, I want to take, you know, I want to thank you for coming on. This was a fantastic interview. I know I didn't cover much about sleep paralysis. <laughs> I know. You know, sometimes that happens. And you know what, Gary? I, I don't even mind because I just, I love talking about this kind of stuff. But if anything, I think your listeners will get a, a feel for, you know, the research that I've done and a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. This is the kind of stuff I love to research. And there's some pretty unexpected things. You're not going to get the cliche sleep paralysis stuff in my book. I talk about the ancient Asclepius cults. And I talk about uh, threshold covenants. I have a whole chapter on vampires. And there's all sorts of 
cool little Easter eggs in this book for anyone who's interested in a topic uh, in the topic of sleep paralysis, but is kind of bored and tired of kind of the the stuff that's just copy and pasted over and over and over again on the internet. Because I really went out of my way to write things that I believed were absolutely accurate and true and insightful without just rehashing the same silly kind of boring tales we've already told. Awesome. And before we wrap it up, where's the best place for my listeners to get your book? Yeah, absolutely. So it's called They Only Come Out at Night. And it is available exclusively on lamarzuli.net. All right. And I'll put a link to that in the notes of this episode so my listeners can find it and purchase your book. It's been a pleasure talking with you. You're welcome back to come on anytime. And uh, just hang on for one moment, and I'm going to play the outro. Thanks, Gary. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. If you loved what you listened to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable.